You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we chat with an ETF shop that allows investors to gain exposure to asset classes and strategies used by some of the most sophisticated endowments and institutional investors, as well as an investment advisor to high net worth individuals who has a great deal of experience in the European private banking scene. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is Thursday, April 16th, and today on Alternative Thinking, uh, both sides of the investment coin, we have Julian Kramatko with Accelerate Financial Technologies and John Boomsma with Raymond James. Uh, Let's start with uh, self-introductions if you want to start, Julian. Thanks, James. Uh, So my background is I've spent over a decade managing uh, alternative strategies, uh, mostly on behalf of accredited investors, institutional investors. And two years ago, I went out and started Accelerate, really with the goal of bringing innovation to the alternative space, uh, capitalizing on uh, the growth of liquid alternatives uh, through ETFs and really bringing uh, innovation like a new structure and really, really specialize in a number of different alternative strategies, anything from uh, arbitrage to absolute return, private equity replication, and things of that nature. We do a lot of multi-factor, long, short strategies as well, but a long time in the game and uh, love talking stocks and alternative strategies. That's great. So you mentioned innovation what uh, what have you been doing that is innovative uh, with your products or your strategies and the way you've been attacking it? Yeah, so there's a number of things in the alternative investment space, a number of pain points that have been around for a very long time that really haven't been addressed. Number one is this access. Um, for many, many decades, hedge funds and private equity were really strictly only for Uh, family offices, wealthy investors, and uh, large institutional investors with high minimum investment. So basically by creating the hedge fund ETF structure, we uh, allowed access to these institutional caliber strategies for all investors with basically no minimum investment. Uh, So really just democratizing alternative strategies through a more accessible structure. That's number one. Number two is transparency. Um, we're super transparent in terms of how the strategies work, what positions we hold long and short, and then really just educating investors on uh, how various alternative strategies work through all the content that we generate, such as this podcast here. And then in addition to that, one of the main pain points, uh, another one is liquidity or lack thereof in traditional alternative strategies. Mm -hmm. If you look Mm -hmm. at some of the more illiquid strategies such as private equity lockups can be as long as seven to 10 years. Uh, Hedge funds are on average monthly, but some are quarterly or worse. And so in in this new hedge fund ETF structure, it offers intraday liquidity. So investors can really get liquidity as they demand. And lastly, fees. Everyone knows that 2 and 20 price point has been a sore spot for investors for a long time. We thought that we'd bring uh, innovation to that by 
bringing the same strategies that we previously ran at 2 and 20 for accredited investors and bringing the fees down as much as 80% in our new uh, hedge fund ETF. So really innovating in a number of spaces in the alternative sector, including liquidity, uh, fees, uh, transparency, and access. Wow, that must be uh, music to your ears, John, the lower fees. Um, so, John, what have you been doing uh, with your clients and educating them uh, and uh, just generally over the last few years uh, as you've been advising people? Well, a uh, quick introduction uh, as to me. You know, um, I run an uh, investment advisory and uh, portfolio management practice with uh, Raymond James. Uh, I've done so f- since 2012, uh, and we basically work for a small group of family offices, business owners, professionals, and also uh, European investors. Oh, wow. Uh, I would say the uh, uh, in terms of client number, uh, it's a rel- relatively small practice, and that means that we can provide a little bit more uh, service and that we know our clients quite well. Mm. Um it's, a little, it's like a like a partnership, and um, uh, we approach it from a tailor-made point of view. So we don't do any standard offerings or cookie cutters, which you see throughout the industry. Now, uh, uh, looking back, you know, I've been in the business uh, for a while now. So I started in uh, 1989. Uh, that was back in the Netherlands. Wow. Initially, a couple of years for institutional investors, and uh, later on moved to Luxembourg and uh, uh, serving uh, wealthy uh, families as well as family offices. Mm-hmm. And in 2010, emigrated to Canada to build my business here, and uh, you know that's going quite well. And uh, Julian, uh, you know, as to what you're doing, uh, I think that's quite interesting. Uh, you know. As to the ETF, how can you basically provide liquidity, uh, daily liquidity, if you invest in uh, hedge funds that uh, have a, uh, have different, often different uh, liquidity uh, profiles? Yes, that's a good question. And we're not actually investing in hedge funds. We're running hedge fund strategies. What an ETF is, it's just a structure. You look at a traditional hedge fund, the structure is typically a limited partnership or something of that nature. So we're not a limited partnership. We're just a mutual fund trust within an ETF that trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So you can really put a hedge fund into any structure you want. And the vast majority of hedge funds do have liquid underlying securities. And we really need to be cognizant of the fact that we do provide intraday liquidity. And one thing that's paramount to us is the liquidity of our underlying holdings. So we only go long and short, highly liquid assets, Mm. such that we don't have that asset liability mismatch, where you're starting to see it in the private lending space now where they're getting redemptions. And with all the um, volatility in that space, they can't meet the redemptions and they're putting up gates, which is absolutely horrific for investors. We'll never be in that position just because for us, liquidity is paramount. If we look at all our longs and shorts, that's easy to you know get into our portfolio or, or out of it uh, within a day if necessary, although we don't really believe that's ever uh, likely. But, you know, the main point is that um, all of our underlying positions in our ETFs are long and short securities, uh, equities, futures, derivatives, etc. So not not some sort of fund of funds. We're directly running, managing the strategies ourselves. Yeah, you know, it's interesting what you mentioned about uh, liquidity or lack thereof, that that is horrific. 
uh, you know, uh, from my perspective and my client's perspective, uh, I'd be happy to have uh, less liquidity if it uh, reduces the risk of downdrafts in the, in the portfolio. So uh, uh, I think would it would be a favorable trade-off, depending, of course, what you invest in. But well, yeah, I mean that's that's somewhat of a, a tricky situation because many of these private asset investment vehicles. They're actually mark to model and not true mark to market. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, what they're disclosing to investors is uh, artificially smoothed returns. Those aren't actually true mark to market returns. Those are mark to model. I call them imaginary returns, really just to make investors uh, kind of warm and fuzzy inside, believing that there's not that underlying volatility. For example, uh, further pulling on that thread of these private mortgage funds that have recently gated, I was looking at the re- return profile of one, which shall rena- rena- remain nameless. However, they did have a six-year track record of, you know, quote-unquote returns in which they indicated they had positive returns every single month for six years, a sharp ratio above seven, and now they've gated their funds and who knows what the underlying net asset value is, but it's clearly not as they disclosed. And time and time again, I've seen this, these private asset funds with this stable and consistent return profile upward. One day investors wake up, their NAV is zero. That's right. It's, it's basically gone bankrupt. And the thing is, I warn investors not to be oblivious to the underlying risks of these private asset funds because liquidity provides a key warning sign. If you're invested in a fund and it's down 50, 75%, you know something's wrong. However, if you're invested in one of these private lending funds, private asset funds, uh, NAV is looking great. One day you wake up and they sent you a letter that they're liquidating and you're going to get zero back. That's a negative 100% return overnight, but it really didn't happen overnight. It it happened over the long term and they just didn't tell you about it. I'm hearing horror stories about um, energy private equity funds that in fact are just doing that. The uh, net asset value and returns to investors looked great until um, lately they're taking massive, massive markdowns, whereas in a public vehicle, uh, the market would have ha- like realized that long time ago. So I really caution investors into actually believing those artificially smooth returns provided uh, by private investment vehicles. Yeah, you're right. And we've seen with uh, the ETF markets lately, the prices of the ETFs in the market have been different from the net asset values declared by the funds. So um, there's been interesting price uh, anomalies there. And uh, well, something that, um, you know, when I was younger in the early late 90s, when I was a broker, we had Aaron Acceptance, it's E-R-O-N, uh, sorry, Aaron Mortgage. Um, and they, uh, their clients would come to me and say, oh, we were getting 10 or 12 or percent and it's backed by mortgages and real estate and it's really safe and we can't lose money at this. And um, you can only maybe offer me 9% in the markets. And I couldn't understand how they were getting these great returns. Um, now, don't get me wrong. There are really good mortgage operators out there that do get high rates of return. Um, and they are actually in mortgages. Uh, but this one was a scam. Like, it was actually a Ponzi scheme. And it was yeah. revealed in the uh, year 2000 to be that. So uh, the problem was that when you go back to these people and say, oh, well, I guess things didn't go as well would you like to invest with me? They just say, well, everything's gone. 
so the nice thing about the market is that it does give you at least a price. It may not be the right price, but it does give you a price uh, of, of the underlying assets. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, it provides that warning sign. And I just have some data points in terms of private asset vehicles. I uh, recently read the Yale Endowment Annual Report, and so they're big proponents of the endowment model, big allocations to private equity and venture capital. And if you mm-hmm. look at uh, how they view their private equity, they actually have underlying volatility assumptions of private equity of about 24%. And for their venture pa- venture capital portfolio, they assume standard deviation of 38%. However, yeah. if you look at where the managers are marking those NAVs, it's significantly less. I actually saw uh, a firm that listed private equity returns having a volatility of 8%, which was just laughable. <laughs> Right, it's flat until it uh, until it absolutely gets decimated uh, sometimes. So, um, uh, John, how, what have you found in your uh, work in Europe there in the, in the, the uh, wealth management side? Uh, venture capital, private equity, ETFs, uh, traditional hedge funds, and then the usual uh, stock and bond market. Uh, well, uh, I think it's less uh, developed uh, and less deep and wide than it is here in North America. Um, it's certainly not something that is uh, available for the general public. Uh, so these are usually professional or semi-professional investors uh, active in that space. Um, and I would say that uh, the mindset is very institutional over here. It's, as I said, more diverse. And that's, uh, that's, that's a bit of a draw for European investors to uh, also allocate a little bit of the portfolios to, uh, to North America and Canada in particular. Um, and that's part of, part of my business, basically. So uh, why do they like it? Um, obviously, Europe is the old world. It's had many, many years of investing, the tulip craze, the South Sea bubble, but many other good investments as well. Um, why do they like Canada? Is it the mountains and the trees or is there something else there? It's basically market inefficiencies. Uh, where there's market inefficiency, you can usually find interesting opportunities. Um, and mm. what I think uh, all these uh, alternative managers have in common is that they find specific uh, mousetrap in that, uh, well, let's say, inefficiency space. And uh, some do it really well. Uh, they come up with a very simple mousetrap, um, and that makes it easier for me to assess and do due diligence. Uh, others, uh, yeah, make it a little bit more complicated, um, and that's probably better to avoid. So um, that's part of the uh, the due diligence that I do for uh, European investors. Hmm. Right, uh, and then Julian, like, so you, for your merger arbitrage fund, that that strategy, uh, how do you implement it? Like um, this so-called simple, mouse, simpler mousetrap. Um, how do you develop the trading rules uh, to basically give the same type of returns as an actual fund um, to deliver this alternative beta? Well, if you compared our merger arbitrage fund with many of the private kind of two and twenty funds, I think they'd look very similar. Um, we're not really doing anything unique. I mean, we're long diversified portfolio of merger arbitrage opportunities, uh, collection of cash deals, share deals, um, some special purpose acquisition companies, uh, largely on the equity side, but we can look on the fixed mm-hmm. income and derivative side as well. So it's really just a standard uh, systematic merger arbitrage strategy. And uh, like, but the thing about our mouse trap is we charge 95 basis points. So 
Um, the, best, the best thing about low fees is higher net returns for investors. So it really gives us a head start on any of our private hedge fund competitors such that uh, you know the fee savings to investors puts us ahead by 2 to 3% per year before we do anything. So it's uh it's definitely wow. beneficial to investors just having that uh that head start but in terms of underlying composition of the portfolio it'll be very similar. You look at the landscape in terms of North American M&A there's typically around 60 to 80 uh outstanding deals and and we'd invest in uh, at least half of them uh, on average. So if you take that into account and look at another merger arbitrage fund on the private side running a diversified portfolio, there's only so many uh, deals to invest in that they're bound to be quite similar, right? It's not like mm-hmm. there's uh, 4,000 opportunities to pick from if you're looking at all the uh, liquid stocks uh, in North America. There's north of uh, well above <laughs> like 20,000 stocks globally. Um, so if you have a, a standard uh, long short equity hedge fund, they're going to look dramatically different. But um, yeah, I think arbitrage uh, funds, they'll tend to look uh, or, or have pretty significant overlap. So you really won't see much uh, underlying difference than uh, the standard two and 20 ones. Right. So that gets to be a mugs game when you're trying to guess the next um, the next merger, uh, because no one really knows where that's going to come from. And uh, just gets to be a bit of a different game. That's a completely different strategy. We call that uh, rumor trage or pre-arbitrage. Like in our in our uh, arbitrage fund, we only invest in definitive deals because that allows us to produce what we expect to be a specific risk return profile for investors. And really, the key for our strategy in terms of merger arbitrage is consistency, low volatility, and low risk. So once you start doing oh and low correlation. So once you start engaging in more rumor trage, more pre-arbitrage, where it's more speculative, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you can generate great returns with that, but that's not a pure merge arbitrage strategy. It introduces more beta, more volatility into the portfolio and increases the risk level. What we saw in March is uh, if you take a pre-arbitrage stock like Navistar, that drew down significantly uh, over that time period. So we like to stick with the definitive deals and that's kind of the standard merger arbitrage strategy is to stick with deals with a high expectation of closing just because it gives you that stable low risk return profile. Wow, that's cool. 95 bips, that's uh, that's low. And then you have some other ones that are zero and, and 20% performance fee or 0% management, 30% performance. Uh, John, how do you look at pricing of fees? Like, uh, are you ambivalent to it and just look at the returns or... Or do you think that like the the uh, cheapest fund rules the roost because if you have two to three percentage points ahead, that's a really good start and maybe maybe uh, perhaps insurmountable. Well, you know, I think that's a good question. I'm not too concerned about fees, depending on what it uh, what it is that people do for it. Um, I think if you uh, tilt the discussion too much towards fees, then you, you run the risk of sort of commoditizing your product or uh, yeah, reducing the perception of any added value. So I would uh, look at uh, what the managers actually do. Uh, is it time consuming? Is it risky? Uh, do they have the ability to generate uh, additional returns for investors? You know, and uh, with that entire picture, you know, I sort of yeah come to an assessment whether or not the fee is justified. And in some cases, you know, I've refused to do business with uh, certain managers because I think it was too skewed towards the 
towards the manager mm-hmm. and there was not not enough uh, on the table for for the investors so um, um i tried to find uh, a sensible let's say uh, um, yeah sens- sensible division between fees but uh, i'm not focused on absolute numbers per se how, how about when you set up a portfolio, John? Do you have like uh, in your IPS, your investment policy statement, like a model portfolio where you'd have so much in in merger arbitrage or hedge funds, or is it just whatever makes sense for the client? Well, that's a, that's a good question as well. I know that the industry tends to uh, see things that way. That they have uh, product A, B, and C, or model portfolio A, B, and C, and you know mm-hmm. you try to sort of uh, place that with your clients. Uh, I have a totally different view on the business. And yeah, I had a feeling. Um, and uh, I, uh, I first hit around the table with investors and say, okay, what is it that you want your money to do? And that uh, that varies enormously depending on uh, on the investor. Some uh, want to maximize cash flow, others are going for growth, others are sensitive to taxation, others are sensitive to volatility and risk of drawdowns. So I first try to get a, fir- a clear view on what it is that people want to achieve. And based on that, we go back to the drawing board and say, okay, mm-hmm. uh, what can we do at our end to make things work for that particular client? And as a result of that, uh, none of the clients have uh, uh, the same portfolio. It's all tailor-made. And every position that we have in a portfolio should serve a very specific uh, purpose. Cool. And we've had some pretty hairy markets here in the last little while, like the last month. thing got pretty pear-shaped. It's about mid-April now. So um, us both, but maybe we'll start with Julian. How did the volatility affect your portfolios, your strategies, and ETFs in general. Like I know that Robert Reich uh, said that about hedge funds you know, were down 9% in the crisis, and um, oh, generally the markets were down 20%, so they must have inside information, but it's just math. <laughs> like it's just shorting uh, reduces volatility. Um, but how have, how have yours fared over the last while? So we run uh, a whole, whole suite, uh, everything from low risk to high risk strategies. Um, so our arbitrage fund is is new, and with respect to all the volatility, led to a significant widening of arbitrage spreads. In fact, uh, March was I think the worst month for merger arbitrage on record, uh, going back to um, you know the eighties. It was I think March was like threefold worse than the worst month from nineteen eighty seven. So that created exceptional opportunities. Uh, in the arbitrage space, we saw spreads widen. Uh, in February, they're roughly 5% yield, uh, annualized return on average. And we saw that in the depths of March, I think around March 23rd or March uh, 21st, that widened to about 24% annualized. Market was pricing in basically average le- every leverage buyout was going to fail and uh, half of all outstanding M&A going to fail. And that just didn't happen. Deals are still getting done. Mm -hmm. Deals are still closing. And so the return potential uh, in merger arbitrage, I looked at the spreads today, still average yield of about 14%, which is nearly threefold what we find in a normal environment just two months ago. So pretty exceptional opportunities on the arbitrage side. In terms of long-short equity, uh, obviously, if you run a sizable short book, 
you're going to have lower, lower beta, lower correlation, and uh, likely outperform by a pretty wide margin, which we saw on our hedge strategies. Um, so those were definitely beneficial on the drawdown and really lends credence to the value of having a short book within a diversified model portfolio. Um, so certainly it helped out in that scenario. Then on the private so- private equity side, our private equity replication strategy uh, would have fared poorly in that type of environment, just given the volatility. What private equity replication is, it's levered, lo- levered long small cap value because that is uh, what private equity is uh, historically. Those are the, the three factors that make up private equity returns. However, like it's important when allocating to private equity. I always say make this a real small position because uh, in terms of setting expectations, it's a high-risk strategy. I mean, uh, Yale assumes that the private equity portfolio has volatility of nearly 25%. That's almost double the market. Right. And so if you have a, a portfolio, say the average private equity fund has a portfolio of, of uh, smaller capitalization companies levered six times, obviously they're going to fall far, far more than the S&P 500. But over the long term, private equity, that small cap levered value stock portfolio has outperformed. So it's really important when you're getting involved in that type of strategy to be cognizant of the risk and the drawdown risk and the volatility, and also the fact that over the long term, this type of strategy has outperformed. But in order to earn those premium long-term returns, there's a trade-off. That trade-off is more volatility and more risk. It's that simple. I always said if I was ever reincarnated, uh, I would come back as the head of a private equity pool at a major pension plan, uh, because no one would know that you're an idiot for quite a while because of all the, they're still dated. Um, but it, it is sobering to know uh it's well, it's, it's very good to know that they do actually um take into account that there might be 25 percent uh volatility in these private equity investments because pricing is very sobering it gets you closer to what what the action and what it should be um so john what uh, uh how do your clients view this so do they look at their statements and give you a call every few days to ask about their, their how they're doing or are they uh they have more longer term do you find well, you know, um, yes, it's uh, it's longer term. Uh, so what we try to do before we invest is uh, f- figure out something that not only makes sense in terms of what they want to achieve and uh, their financial goals, but also in uh, uh, reducing the the drawdown risk uh, that you have uh, that's well, incrementally uh, connected to investing. Um, so uh, we. F- we spend a lot of time educating clients on what it is that we would propose to them to hold. Um, and that, well, that creates a lot of peace of mind, basically. So w- what we try to include in those uh, yeah, proposals is, is basically uh, alts. You know, that's about 60% of our business. Alts, preferably, that are uh, modestly or not correlated to markets. So when you look at um, yeah the, the whole cave COVID uh, crisis uh, and the impact of that on portfolios, we see a, a significant significant difference between the clients that uh, hold non-correlated assets versus the ones that don't. Mm. The ones that don't hold correl- uh, uncorrelated assets, you know, they end uh, end up with uh, 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 listed securities. 
And you know, as you know, that has been very volatile during the past few uh, few weeks. So um, yeah, um, you can't. There's not a model portfolio, and uh, the outcomes basically uh, tend to vary depending on the extent uh, to which people have non-correlated assets. And Julian, you said this is, is a new fund. I'm just wondering about your capacity because I, I always picture an S and P. Uh, ETF would buy all ETF all 500 stocks or so and just kind of ride that in a fairly static fashion. But yours is yours is dynamic. It's doing something a bit different. Um, so uh, how how do you do that? And how much can you put into this strategy without affecting returns too much? Yeah, in terms of, in terms of general ETFs, uh, as you indicated, kind of like the first ones were the broad-based index ETFs. But now there's basically an ETF for everything, there's gold, there's uh, oil futures, there's and there's actively managed equity and fixed income ETFs. So kind of uh, everything uh, available in the private or in the sort of public space, as long as it's liquid, you can put it into the ETF structure. And so in terms of uh, liquidity and capacity, it really depends on the strategies. All the strategies we run. Are, are highly liquid and could handle, you know, billions of dollars. I think that one that could be most constrained, we have a, a one that is Canadian only, uh, in which we have long and short Canadian stocks. So um, that's probably one that, you know, if it got to a billion dollars at that point, we mm-hmm. maybe, uh, maybe start getting concerned and, and being overly diversified in terms of our long and short positions. However, uh, if you look at something like arbitrage, there's over $70 billion allocated globally to pure merger arbitrage funds. And there's a wow. number of uh, arbitrage funds that are into billions of dollars. So basically sky's the limit for, uh, for the vast majority of our, our strategies. Like it's not something that we'd ever have to be concerned with capping or, or anything of that nature. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so obviously you like Julian, you like merger arbitrage. Uh, how about you, John, where are you finding opportunities now? Something you may not have looked at, before the crisis, uh, but now has really seen, uh, you're seeing it as a place to invest. Uh, it's looking a lot better. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this one because uh, uh, I think that this crisis is very different from uh, the usual ones. Usually you have crisis uh, in certain pockets of the economy or certain pockets of the market, and now uh, pretty much everything is put on hold. Um, what I hear from clients is uh, sort of the initial, uh, let's say, uh, thought whereby, okay, we have a pullback in markets uh, and markets will move move back uh, as soon as the economy switches on. Now, I'm not so sure about that uh, because the question is, when will it kick back in and to what extent will it come back? So thinking about that, uh, I believe that uh, for the, the general market, you know, uh, they were probably fairly valued in January, February. With uh, diminished uh, economic prospects, you know, they're not going to come back to uh, the uh, original level that we saw in, in February and, uh, and January. Uh, that doesn't mean that you, you cannot find interesting opportunities in markets because there are always interesting opportunities, uh, irrespective of if markets are up or down, you can always find interesting things to invest in. But you have to take a closer look. And until we get 
some decent economic visibility uh, back in, in the markets, you know, it's going to be a trading market. You know, there's an enormous amount of money that uh, that uh, goes into markets. Part of that, you know, is, is basically burned uh, because we need to keep things up and running. But that money is not really put to any productive use other than propping things up. But there's still a very significant amount of um, money that will flow into the system. And uh, beyond uh, 12 months, I think that that will perpetuate the multiple growth that we've seen in, in the past decade as well. Until then, it'll be a bumpy ride. Cool. And uh, what sort of advice, maybe this is to John, what sort of advice would you have now uh, to someone that maybe hasn't had a fantastic experience to this this little bit here? Uh, obviously not one of your clients, but they, they, hand you their state, your, they hand you their statements and they say, uh, what would you have me do? Like, how do you explain the markets in general, especially over the last little while to them and uh, and kind of talk about how would you would go forward together? Yeah, well, you know, I think that uh, clients first need to think before they act. Um, and there's a, mm. there's a lot of value in it. Uh, that's where clients themselves should take initiative, but it is also something that their advisor or portfolio manager should uh, take time to do. Um, it usually results in, in, in a strategy or a plan or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and if you if you've done your homework properly, then it should be a solid plan. Now, um, you need to be able to execute on the plan, irrespective of market circumstances. So, uh, what I would definitely advise clients not to do, or investors not to do, is uh, is sort of um, uh, let emotion get the um, the upper hand and uh, revisit all all the planning or everything you've done earlier uh, just because you're in in market turmoil and you're not quite uh, you don't have the visibility that's usually um, um, a bad move uh, if mm-hmm. people stuck to quality and if they stuck to a decent plan and if it's aligned with what they want to do then uh, they'll they'll be able to yeah weather through this and you know I've, I've, I've lived through about, uh, I've just calculated it, uh, about 15, 18 crisis situations uh, since <laughs> I got started in the business. And, you know, everybody always thinks it's, uh, it's the new, new. Uh, it's not. Um, you'll, you'll work through this. And uh, eventually, if, if you're level-headed, uh, you'll end up uh, ahead. So I think that that is the best advice that I can give anybody. Uh, not only my clients. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a retread. Uh, Alfred Julian, like, are you selling through advisors predominantly, or is it more of a DIY uh, selling direct to the clients? And I guess for both of them, um, how do you uh, typically position the merger arm and your other portfolios in their uh, in their uh, framework for how they're managing their money or their clients' money? Yeah, so we see our target market as segmented 60-30-20, so 60% financial advisors, where they'd put this uh, within their book of business. And really, we're providing tools for advisors to access that endowment-style asset allocation. So uh, instead of there's the standard 60-40, equities and bonds, perhaps it could be 50-30-20, and that 20% is a diversified sleeve of alternative strategies, um, you know, arbitrage, market neutral, absolute return, uh, global macro, risk parity, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so that's kind of how we see ourselves fitting into an advisor's portfolio. Really, if they're looking for uh, volatility mitigation, well, that's arbitrage and absolute return, market neutral. If they're looking for enhanced return, that's private equity. Then on the institutional side, it's roughly 30%. Uh, it's how we kind of view it because the the uh, alternative ETF presents some unique uh, competitive advantages on the institutional side. One is anonymity such that they can buy, buy and sell the investment without having to notify the manager. And, and we've seen in the past um, some institutional investors get upset with the NAV redemption and they go to court, right? Uh, and mm. they're concerned about front running and, and things of that nature. If the manager knows when they're getting in, when they're getting out, there's the uh, liquidity. Uh, obviously, institutional investors have their own liquidity constraints. And, and when they run into trouble is when they can't get that liquidity when we need it. So instead of holding 5% of cash on hand, diluting their returns and their allocation, well, they can just hold that in uh, liquid hedge fund ETFs where they have access to it any day of the week. Right, and then ten percent kind of do-it-yourselfers who want something different in, in their portfolio, perhaps more downside protection, lower volatility, lower risk, etc. So, in the depths of the market, uh, say like two weeks ago, I think it was down to like eleven percent at one day. Uh, with this liquidity, is it good? Is it a good idea to go in and out of the merger fund or other other ETFs, or just wait it out in the S and P, or just or just hold your portfolio? Yeah, so it really depends on what the what the investor wants. Because you you say the market was down, meaning that the S and P five hundred and other long only equity indices were down, but certain asset classes that were up, like long term treasuries, did uh, quite well. Gold did well, so there were some markets that weren't down, and that's the same thing with alternatives. Some have zero correlation, some have high positive correlation, and some are even negatively correlated. Like we have we have a it's not an ETF at this point yet. However, we do have a market neutral mandate that um, you know performed well uh, last month, just because that basically has zero correlation. We expect that to sort of chug along irrespective of what uh, the market does, because you're actually matching the longs and the shorts. So that's something to consider. Where on the flip side of the coin, something like uh, private equity that you know generally got smoked, kind of like the Russell Value Index drew down significantly more than private equity. Then say another alternative strategy that mm. we don't run, but other firms do are tail risk. And tail risk funds performed phenomenally well in March. Oh, yeah. really, that's what they're designed to do. So it really depends what the investor is looking to capitalize on. Yeah, sure. If you're looking to capitalize on wide merger arbitrage spreads or wide uh, junk bond spreads, um, uh, you know, levered loan yields, it was a good time to step in in mid-March and you can still really uh, capitalize on that. Even corporate bonds seemed like very attractive yields and spreads last month and uh, less so the case uh, as of now, you saw that in municipal bonds. It really depended on the market and that specific strategy, in addition to exactly what the investor is looking to accomplish. Yeah, it seems like there's a couple of frequencies here. There's the trading uh, effect that you can do with uh, with ETFs and in and out of the markets. Uh, it's really easy because like, you can't buy a high-yield portfolio on a whim and put $100 million into it um, and then sell it the next day. And also, uh, like as merger arb, uh, with merger arb spreads widen, you can get into that fairly quickly versus trying to choose a fund ma- hedge fund manager or or trying to choose your actual security. So you can kind of do that. But or um, 
if it is working, uh, like some of, for, maybe for some of John's clients, you hold longer term uh, for years and years. And as long as it's doing what uh, what the investor needs it to do, then then why not let it uh, let it do its work? Eh? Yeah, I'm a I'm a large proponent of long term investing, and really um, ends with uh, the best outcomes for investors if you take a long term approach to asset allocation and not kind of dancing in and out of various asset classes with the different moves in markets, because that generally results in more mistakes and a worse financial outcome. So it's really important, I think, to have a solid long-term asset allocation plan and really just try to stick through that, through thick and thin, perhaps being somewhat tactical, capitalizing on various, you know, really good opportunity sets as they come up. But uh, yeah, as I always like to say, you got to be in it to win it. And that's very true in investing. What do you think, John? Well, I agree with you, uh, Julian. Uh, I think that uh, usually um, uh, investors get uh, in or out if they start to, uh, at the wrong time, if they start to trade. Um, you need to do your thinking in advance and then yeah, place your chips and then let time do its work. Um, that'll get you into in the best possible position to attain what you want. Well, thanks, John. Uh, thanks, Julian. Uh, it's been great to have you here to speak, and uh, we'll certainly have you back again sometime soon and on another podcast. Uh, so I uh, just hope you guys have a great uh, rest of the week. Hey, thank you, uh, James. Uh, it was good to meet you, Julian. Uh, good luck with your business. Yeah, thanks, guys. Have a great day.